I was having a good laugh with my uh, sister-in-law this week. We were reminiscing back. I don't, I don't even remember how many years ago it was now that they, that they bought the house that they are currently in. But um, we were just sort of remembering all of the early days of them taking possession and beginning to do renovation on this house that they had just purchased. The, the funny thing about the whole situation was that the house was advertised, if I remember correctly, it was advertised as fully renovated. It seems that this, this guy who is, had fashioned himself somewhat of a handyman had bought this house and he had done a bunch of work on it and then thought he was just going to you know, turn around and flip the house for however much money he was going to make on it. But when we went into the house, I remember the first time I went into the house after they took possession, I remember kind of wondering what sort of renovations had gone on in this place. I, I, I walked in the kitchen. I remember it very clearly. The first thing that struck me when I walked in the kitchen was that there was a drop ceiling with uh, fluorescent lighting, which struck me as odd because I, I, I wouldn't have thought that for many people, fluorescent lighting in the kitchen would have been their first lighting option, especially when you're doing a, a renovation, right? You're, you're doing this so you can sell. And I thought, you know, I, I looked at it and my brother said, well, we're not keeping this. You know, it'll come down. And, and I remember they pulled the drop ceiling down only to discover that underneath, above the drop ceiling, every single joist on the second floor was sagging with rot. They ended up having to, having to jack up the whole second floor, reinforce every single joist. The whole thing was just rotting away. And instead of dealing with it, the guy had just thrown up a T-bar ceiling with some fluorescent lights and walked away. Um, my sister-in-law said that her favorite part of the kitchen was what was called the greenhouse window. It's kind of three panes of glass over the sink that kind of, it looked into the backyard, but I mean, really on the other side of the window was a rotting deck and an external staircase to the unit on the second floor. And it was a bit of a canopy there and, and they didn't want to keep any of that. So they, they tore all of that down. And, and my sister-in-law said, uh, for the first time, this greenhouse window was exposed to the outside elements. And she said, I remember the first time it rained, Noah rode through in his boat with two of every kind of animal. She said, to watch the, the water pour through this window, it was three single panes of glass, like three panes of single pane glass held together with wood trim and finishing nails. She said, the water just poured into the kitchen the first time rain Touch it. I, I remember too, the, the, the kitchen had a sandwich counter in it. Just keep cheap uh, countertop on top of a sheet of plywood that Carolee reminded me had been painted with this high gloss white finish. And she was saying to me this week, she, she remembered that she and Tim had gone to remove the sandwich counter and, and Tim had wandered over with a crowbar. They were going to take a crowbar to it. And when they got there, they realized that it actually wasn't nailed into anything. And they just kind of picked it up and sheared it off the wall and, and carried it outside. And I said to her well, on the phone, I said, you know, I remember that thing was so cheaply made. And she said, and painted with a high gloss white finish. And she said, what we learned that day was that if you take a piece of garbage and paint it with a high gloss white finish, all you have is a high gloss white piece of garbage. That statement struck me when I was thinking about it afterwards because I thought, 
That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And what we started to explore last week, and starting in, in Matthew 5.17, last week, we, Jesus was describing in the Sermon on the Mount, in the main part of the sermon, he's describing what a life of faith looks like. The life that God blesses. Life in relationship with God, the way God always imagined it. And Jesus said, what, what God is not interested in is this sort of hyper-religiosity that is, that's committed only to an external conformity to religious rule-keeping. Jesus isn't interested in that. What Jesus is interested in is the kind of life that is being changed in its heart, in which God is, is washing people clean with forgiveness. And then performing surgery on, on our hearts, so, you know, removing the, remember we read this text, removing the heart of stone, that hard, callous, stubborn, rebellious heart, and replacing it, transplanting in a soft, tender heart that is sensitive to him and sensitive to the people around us, a heart that is filled with a love for God and a love for people that is motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit living inside of us to become a completely different kind of person. Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees and the teachers of law, people who were content to put a high gloss white coat of paint on the exterior of their religious life, while all the while the rot and decay remained undealt with underneath. It's kind of a drop-sealing spirituality. If we just cover it up with conformity to religious rule-keeping, from the outside, everything will seem to be fine. And Jesus says, that is just not what I want. I want you to experience a life where God is doing something that starts on the inside. Well, that's all well and good. Except it's kind of general and, and vague. I mean, we gave some examples last week. But the question, I mean, Jesus, what are you really talking about? What, what kind of difference does it make to, to not live a life of external rule keeping, but to be committed to having a change of heart instead? I remember uh, the, the thought occurs to me suddenly. When I was young, uh, we, we used to repeat this rhyme. I don't know where we learned it. I'm pretty sure it wasn't in Sunday school. But we used to repeat this rhyme. We don't drink or dance or smoke or chew or hang around with girls that do. It was sort of, um, that was kind of the summary of what it meant to be a Christian teenager. You just adhere to these rules on the outside. But what does it look like for spirituality to go deeper than that? Well, for all of the rest of Matthew chapter 5 and for all of the rest of this heart condition sermon, we're going to look at six illustrations that Jesus offers where he says, listen, a life that is fully devoted to following me, that is wholeheartedly, religiously devoted to loving God and loving people as empowered by the Holy Spirit, here's what that kind of life is going to look like. And he starts in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. He says, for example... You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Uh, Jesus is quoting from the Ten Commandments. It's, I think, the sixth of Ten Commandments. The, in the Old Testament, the foundational, basic summary of what morality looks like when lived in relationship with God. These are the ten 
core principles that define um, the basic behavioral tenets of a life lived in relationship with God. And one of them is you do not intentionally take the life of another person. So you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. The law doesn't actually say that. Jesus is summarizing all sorts of material there. But the material is all clear. That anybody who intentionally takes the life of another person under the Old Testament religious law would be subject to judgment. He, he doesn't mean you'll be arrested and, and tried before a jury of your peers. What Jesus means is, if you are convicted of murder, you will pay for the life that you've taken with your own life. In Exodus 21, it says, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. Life for life. The penalty for breaking the commandment You shall not murder. It was a core principle. What the Pharisees had done, remember this whole part of the sermon is about contrasting rightness in relationship with God with the kind of righteousness or self-righteousness that the Pharisees were living. What the Pharisees had done is they had taken this fundamental tenet of obedience to God and they had turned it into a religious rule. A checkbox that would measure their allegiance to God. So the the question for the Pharisee is, have I committed a murder? Have I intentionally taken the life of another human being? No. A check in the plus column for me. What they took the commandment and turned it into Um, the basic religious standard of a person's goodness, whether or not you had committed the act of murder. It's interesting to me that Jesus starts with this one because even today when I have conversations with people about um, faith and whatever, every once in a while, somebody's comeback, they'll retort to me. They'll they'll say, well, listen, I'm a good person. It's not like I've killed anybody. They take this commandment out of this list of Ten Commandments. They take this commandment and they make it the bare minimum, bottom line, baseline standard of what it means to be a good person. And for many people in our community, that's a pretty easy standard to clear. Uh, There aren't many in our midst who would have to stare themselves in the mirror and say, no, I haven't kept that command. They took the commandment from the scriptures, made it a religious rule to keep by which their righteousness could be measured, and they all passed with flying colors. And yet Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but that's not actually, that's not actually the standard. He says in Matthew 5, 22, he says, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, Jesus doesn't mean anybody who's experienced the emotion of anger. Anger is a spontaneously initiated emotion out of self-preservation. It's a tremendously useful emotion. It can Uh, save your life it can save other people's lives Um, anger itself is not evil or wrong or sinful in fact emotions themselves are just neutral they're like uh, 
lights on the dashboard of your car. Emotions are only there to signal that something is going on under the hood, and you should probably figure out what that is so that you can resolve it, and the light goes out. That anger, there's no problem with anger itself. Jesus isn't saying, anyone who's experienced anger, what Jesus is saying is, if you look at the Greek grammar, anyone who persists in an ongoing state of being angry with a brother or sister. Jesus says, if you're the kind of person for whom anger continually simmers over a low flame on the front burner, you've just missed the heart of what it means to be a follower of mine. If you're the kind of person who has this low-level frustration about you all the time, if you're the kind of person who is actively uh, nursing a grudge, rehearsing the injuries that somebody uh, committed against you and then nursing this grudge so that every time you hear their name or every time they walk in the room, you growl under your breath and you just think, oh, I can't stand that person. Jesus says, you've, you've just missed the whole heart of it. In fact, Jesus says, if you... If you have that kind of anger alive in your life in this ongoing way, he says, you'll be subject to judgment. The language is exactly the same as the language applied to the murderer. You yourself are just as guilty as the person who took somebody else's life. In fact, Jesus' buddy John would write later on, he says, anyone who hates a brother or sister has already murdered them in their heart. He says, you may not have committed the act, but in your heart, you are exactly the same. The only difference between you and a murderer is the social convention or the fear of prison or whatever it was that inhibited you from from performing the actual act of intentionally injuring or killing another person. Jesus says, if you live with that nursed grudge, that ongoing anger and resentment, the bitterness towards somebody else, uh, you're exactly the same. As somebody who's taken a life. Which since that's all of us. I would want to say to the few in our community. Who have at some time in a dark past. Taken somebody else's life. You're no different than the rest of us. I hope you never heap shame on yourself. Because of choices you've made. Because Jesus says in the very heart of it. We're exactly the same. He goes on, actually, and he says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. The word raka is an Aramaic insult. Uh, The closest English translation would be brainless, literally brainless, empty-headed, brainless. Um, It's the kind of um, insult of belittling contempt that you heap on somebody that you have absolutely no regard for. Somebody who is utterly worthless to you. You know, it's that person who, when they walk in the room, you shake your head and you think, I've I've got absolutely no use for that person. Um, It's it's what you communicate when you're under your breath. You're like, freaking idiot. It's everything you intend to communicate every single time you roll your eyes at somebody else. Or every time um, you shoot back with a piece of biting sarcasm. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for sarcasm. That's like my love language. Uh, but sometimes we do it 
because we want it to sting. Jesus says, you treat somebody with that kind of belittling contempt. He says, well, your case should be handled by the Supreme Court. Who is that for you? The person who's, when you, when you think of their face or when you hear their name, that anger, just the bitterness and resentment begins to grow inside of you. Or the person that you, with absolutely belittling contempt, condescension, you look down on and say, I got no use for that person. Jesus says, you, you've just missed the whole point. He actually goes one step further and he says, um, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. You fool. Jesus might be using a Greek word, moros. It's where we get the English word moron. Jesus, if that's what he's saying, you know, moron, then it's essentially the same as rocket. Like you just sort of the dismissive insult. But I wonder whether Jesus isn't using another Aramaic word, more. That's harsher and harder and more. It's not condescension, it's condemnation. It's everything that's behind you looking into somebody's eyes and saying, why don't you just go to hell? It's what lies behind every impulse you have to shoot somebody the finger or to drop an F-bomb in their lap. Jesus says, if you've got the kind of heart that can look somebody in the eye and tell them to go to hell, Jesus says, well then, I I hate to tell you, you're the one in the danger of hell. Actually, the Bible doesn't say hell. It says, says, you'll be in danger of the fire of Gehenna. It was symbolic of the the wrath of God. Uh, Jesus says, "If if you live with this anger, you'll be subject to judgment by the court. If you belittle and degrade somebody, your case ought to be tried by the Supreme Court. If you're ready to condemn somebody to hell, your case will be heard by God himself. God himself will deal with you. Jesus says, look, look, the point is not whether or not you've obeyed some rule about inflicting harm or taking the life of another human being. That is not the point. The point is, what kind of heart do you have towards other people? Do you have a heart that simmers with rage? Do you have a heart filled with resentment and bitterness? Do you have a heart with, of belittling contempt? Do you have a heart of malicious condemnation? Because if that's what's in your heart, Jesus says, then you just haven't yet understood what it means to follow me. Because at the end of the day, God is not going to ask whether you obeyed the rule about not murdering people. God is going to ask you, was your heart filled with hate or was your heart filled with love? Because Jesus, a life spent following Jesus is a life in which God is allowed to move in and heal that anger. The anger that surfaces in our lives, the the anger that we nurse and nurture and carry with us, that anger so often is rooted in pain. Either just pain in ourselves or pain that somebody's inflicted on us or it's rooted in fear and insecurity. Somebody seems to be getting in the way of, of my hopes and dreams or, or threatening my safety or it's, or it's rooted in our guilt. I know that what I did was wrong and now I feel you accusing me and so I get defensive and self-protective or it's rooted in, in shame. I just 
feel my brokenness and I can't deal with it so I blame you. Or because I feel so broken, I try and puff myself up with pride and you just don't seem to be getting how much better I am than you. And there's just something broken in us, pain and fear and guilt and shame that that nurtures, that that spawns this anger in us. And God wants to step in and, and heal all of that. To cut out that heart of stone and replace it with a soft, tender heart of flesh. So that we become the kind of people who are broken over the brokenness of our relationships. The kind of people who grieve the damage that our anger has done. The kind of people who, who seek out healing for the hurts that spawn it. Then repent of responding to people that way. And who are actively seeking to be filled with the love of God. That we will pour out as love for other people. Love that will, in the power of the Holy Spirit, overwhelm the anger and hate and make us different kinds of people. Jesus says, you want to experience a life that God blesses, a rich, satisfying, meaningful, fulfilling, abundant life till it overflows. I'm telling you, it has nothing to do with whether or not you obeyed a rule about not murdering people. It has everything to do with what is in your heart towards those who have hurt you. And Jesus says, actually John says it later on. He says, we know that we have passed into the kingdom when we're no longer filled with hate, but we're filled with love. And of course, that's a journey. But Jesus says, that's what it means to live the life. So what does that look like in really practical terms? Well, Jesus tells us. Matthew 5, 23 says, therefore, because that's true, because the heart of anger and contempt and condemnation and malice and resentment and bitterness, because that has nothing to do with the heart of God. If you're offering your, your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, because that's true, people whose life is fully devoted to following Jesus Christ, to being washed clean and um, to having a heart transplant, to receive the heart filled with love for God and love for people by the power of the Holy Spirit. If that's you, then you will make a top priority of relational reconciliation in every circumstance. It will become more important to you than anything else you could possibly do. In fact, look at this scenario. Jesus is imagining. So, you know, close your eyes. So everyone do this. Close your eyes, right? Close your eyes. I want you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that you have gathered together with the community of God's people and you are in the middle of a worship service. Never mind. Open your eyes. That's exactly where you are. Jesus says, I want you to imagine you're exactly where you are right now. You're in the temple. Right? And you've brought your gift, you brought your sacrifice, the animal that is going to be sacrificed on the altar for, for your sin and so on. And, and it's right at the moment where the priest is taking your animal to the altar. It's your turn. This is the holiest moment in all of the Jewish organized religion. And right in that moment, what flashes through your head is, man, Dave is mad at me right now. Jesus says the instinctive response of a person whose heart is fully devoted to him is to say, whoa, priest, wait, stop. Stop what you're doing. I'm going to be right back. And who gets up in the middle of the holiest, most climactic moment in the worship service and walks out 
in order to make amends with somebody who's got something against them. And somewhere right now in our three locations, somebody who was thinking about getting up to go pee just decided to wait to the end of the service. (laughs) Jesus says reconciliation is so important that you'd walk away from worship to get it done. I think that's a scary thought to a lot of us. Because I think a lot of us, we live with some misconceptions about what reconciliation means. And we think, because of our misconceptions, we think, I could never do that. We think reconciliation means what has to go back to being exactly the way it was before. They have to be your best friend again, or you have to get back together with your ex. And the truth is, while that would be the ideal of kingdom reconciliation, that um, may not happen is oftentimes not likely to happen, and in fact, sometimes shouldn't even happen. Oftentimes, the reason you're in the situation is because the way it was before was unhealthy, and you should never go back to that unhealthy kind of place. Because of what happened, they have lost your trust, and you have lost their trust, and, and you don't need to trust each other again. Trust is something that is earned, and reconciliation doesn't mean, well, everything is fine, we'll go back to the way it was. It means... Let's get past it and be healed of the anger and be open to seeing where God takes this. I think we live with a a misconception that reconciliation means that we have to, in every circumstance, go talk to the other person. And sometimes that's just not true. Jesus says, if the person has something against you, go talk to them. I've seen relationships really, really damaged by somebody who, in the spirit of trying to live this out, went up to somebody and said, listen, I've hated you for years. Would you forgive me? And this person had no clue. And now they're all messed up because the other person was trying to get unmessed up. And Jesus says, if they have something against you, go make it right. Or if you've done something to really damage them in a tangible way, you've stabbed them in the back or you've slandered them in public, go make that right. But there are just times where you shouldn't go talk. There are, time, there are people you can't talk to because they've passed away or they've moved on. or There are people you shouldn't talk to because they're not safe for you. There are people you shouldn't talk to because they're not good for you. Um, it doesn't mean you have to necessarily go talk to them. It means you have to do whatever you need to do to be healed of the anger and let, let go of the resentment and the bitterness. We think, it just, anyway, what Jesus wants is for us to become the kind of people who are eager to let let it go and to have the anger that we once felt and nurtured and harbored and expressed turn into love. To have the ways in which we once dismissed people as worthless nothings to have that become us embracing people as worthy of our everything. To, to transform us so the people that we once spent our lives tearing down would become the very people that we give all of ourselves in order to build up. Jesus is the top priority. If you you don't want to become the kind of person who's completely missed the point, your top priority in situations of relational discord is to drop whatever you're doing and go make it right. To go make it right as a matter of absolute 
urgency. In Matthew 5, 25, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. And do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will knock it out until you have paid the last penny. In the Roman law system, if I, owe you, if I owed you money, you, the way you responded to that was you subpoena me and you drag me before a judge. And the two of us stand there Before the judge, it's like Judge Judy, right? The people's court. The two of us stand there and the judge hears what you have to say and the judge hears what I have to say and then the judge decides between us. And let's say I'd stolen your clothes at the public bath, which is really bizarre but very common crime in the ancient world. Or I'd stolen your slave. Or I owed you money and I didn't pay you back. And the judge says, no, that's true. You owe him X number of dollars. Can you pay it? And I say, no, I don't have the money. The judge hands me over to the bailiff and the bailiff throws me in the debtor prison and I'm going to stay in debtor's prison until I've paid back every last penny and I'm going to tell you friends um, that's not a really great place to earn money all sorts of ugliness begins to set in at that point and Jesus says that's that's the fate that's the future unless he says you have one chance at this one chance to avoid the ugliness of that fate and that's the walk between your house and the judge He says, you have that journey, that amount of time, that many steps. You have that distance down the road to work it out between the two of you, to settle things out of court so that when you get to court, you can say, you know what, judge? We worked it out between the two of us. And so Jesus says, make every effort to settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. He says, make every effort to make friends with the person who's dragging you to court, with the person who's got something against you. The word literally means to be kindly minded towards them, to be well-intentioned towards them. Jesus says, make every effort, do everything you can to pour yourself out, to seek their good, to do what's best for them, to find out what they need and to do whatever it is that you can do in order to turn this relationship around and make it a positive relationship between the two of you, to restore the friendship. Do that as fast as you can because Jesus says, if you let that slide, the longer you wait, the greater the opportunity, the ugliest ugliness has to settle in. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. If you say even, you know what, I'll deal with it tomorrow. I'll call them in the morning. You've created a window of opportunity for some of the ugliness of bitterness and resentment of condescension, of condemnation, of judgmentalism, of slander. You have, you've opened a window for the ugliness to settle in. And Jesus says, the longer you allow that window to stay open, the greater the opportunity, the greater the chance that this just gets really ugly and painful and bad. He says, the heart of those who want to live life in relationship with me is not, the question is not, did you obey some rule about intentionally inflicting harm to another person? The question is, have you allowed God to do the surgery on your heart 
to cut out the anger and bitterness and resentment and hate and to replace it instead with a heart that is filled with love for him and love for people so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you become the kind of person who is fundamentally committed to relational reconciliation above all else as, the, as a matter of utmost urgency. Every single time a relationship kind of goes sideways or has the potential to. So at the end of the day, the question is not, did you ever commit a murder? The question is, how much were you willing to love? And I just sometimes imagine, friends, I've thought about it a lot this week, but what kind of community we would be about what kind of lives we would get to live, about the kind of freedom that we would experience if we fell on our faces and asked God by the power of his Holy Spirit to fill us with the kind of love for him and love for people that healed us of all of that anger and ugliness in our hearts towards each other. What kind of community would we be if, if our impulse instantaneously was to immediately, as a matter of top priority and utter urgency, we raced to each other's houses to clear up even the tiniest misunderstandings before the ugly stuff begins to settle in? How safe would we feel? How loved would we feel? How free would our hearts be? Because we wouldn't be carrying around all this junk anymore. And how much would people look in from the outside on our community and say of us, I imagine that's how people relate to each other in heaven. All oh, that we would become that kind of community. Less obsessed with whether or not we've broken the rules. And gripped by this vision being transformed by heart, filled with love that cannot tolerate the thought of a broken relationship because we'd committed ourselves to let the love of God spill out of our lives and into each other's. Let's pray together. God, I'm sure that there's not a person in this room who hasn't thought of a name or seen the face of somebody in their world that they struggle with. And God, we know, we confess that. That's not your heart. And it doesn't mean, God, that any of us are going to hell or anything like that. It just means, God, that we're not there yet. And we need you to do more work in us. We need you to fill us with more of your spirit. We need you to do more heart surgery. We need to know more of your love. And we need you, God, to change us. To give us that soft, tender, sensitive heart that's ready to respond in love to everybody all the time. Make us intolerant, God, of relational discord. Make us intolerant of anger, resentment, bitterness. Make us intolerant of, of belittling, of, uh, of condescension of contempt, make us intolerant, God, of biting sarcasm, make us intolerant of condemnation and malice and slander, God, make us intolerant of all of that so we could become a community that experiences the freedom of love. Give us the faith, God,
to trust that that is the path to the abundant life. And turn us into the people you always intended us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.